The rest of us will continue and finish this series called The Glory of Christmas. I'm going to do what we always do. I'm going to pray that God would teach us today from his word that we could grow and, and learn more about who he is and who we are in him. So if you would pray with me. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning, for the chance to celebrate, to anticipate, to long for the day of your arrival. And Father, we recognize that, that um, it's not only about the fact, actually, Father, the scope and scale of what you've done since the beginning of time, the beginning, literally, of the existence of the universe that you designed intentionally to glorify your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that we would get some uh, scale and scope of that, um, then the fact that he was prophesied about, then the fact that he came 2,000 years ago, and Father, that your Son is our only hope for salvation and redemption and um, will come again for your people. So we, we package all that up and ask you to help us understand it more deeply today. We ask that you would um, be our teacher, that your Holy Spirit would instruct us in our innermost being, that it would not be the arguments of man or mankind or worldly philosophy or uh, theory, but it would be your holy doctrine, your holy theology of salvation for your people, indeed all people including us. Help us to lean into that today. Help us to be attentive to your Holy Spirit's leading that we might grow together. We ask you to do this in the name above every name, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, very cool. So this is the final week of the series, as I mentioned, um, and the whole goal of the series was to get to have, to contemplate Christ and Christmas um, with more weight, and we talked about that the first three weeks, about how glory means weight, right, or what we value or how we value something out, and so we talked about that, the glory of, and then what, Christmas, Christmas, and it's the anointed one, the Messiah fulfilled, and then this, the mass part is this being sent out into the world, go now, your prayers are sent, or go forth proclaiming good news, um, we talked in this series about the first week how we, we had this sign given to uh, King Ahaz, if we can remember that far back, right? And how uh, it would be a virgin with child, and it was prophesied to happen. The king thought he had a big, a uh, couple small, uh, he had some problems he thought were big. They were small, but there was a big problem that God was solving. We talked about that in Christ, how that problem is solved. Um, and then we talked about this idea of... Um, uh, we ought not to fear conspiracies, right? Don't let everything the world calls conspiracies, conspiracies, but rather fear the Lord. To, to stand in holy reverence. And part of what Mike shared this morning about being obedient is recognizing that in the moment we can choose to obey our worldly fears and fleshly things or what God is compelling us to do in faith. And so we, we should ought to live then not in fear of conspiracy, but in faithfulness to the Lord, or fear of the Lord, the one who has true power. And then last week we talked about how the people in darkness had seen a great light, and this light could be instantaneous like that, or it could be gradually kind of rising in our lives, and I heard a lot of feedback from you all that that, that, that was helpful, and praise God for his word being fulfilled, that, that Christ manifests in our life in powerful ways, and as a matter of fact, and we're going to hear this again today, that one of the things that happens in our struggle, um, the word um, Israel means to wrestle with God, right? We're talking about that today as well. And so in our struggling, um, God's light is breaking through 
and we are being saved. I would even argue, even when we don't think so, even when we feel like we're rejecting God, he is actively saving us in spite of ourselves. And so this is the hope um, we have in Christ. And, and now we've landed. So we've kind of done this funny thing in this series where we've been looking at the book of Isaiah, but we've been, I don't know if you've noticed, I think I mentioned it once or twice, on your engagement sheets I've put cartoons because in some way we've cartoonized Christmas. And that's okay, it's adorable and cute and sweet and everyone wants it that way. You know, it's like, oh, how precious this is. It's so sweet season, and it is. And yet, it is a powerful amazing, mighty, glorified season of a God who's fighting to save the world. And so we're going to lean into that this morning as we look at this idea of Jesus in the manger and the truth of the manifestation of what that means. So I wonder as we start, what do you think of when you think of baby Jesus at Christmas? One of my, uh, I'll confess something here, one of um, my favorite movie quotes is from Talladega Nights, when Will Ferrell can't quit praying to baby Jesus. Dear baby Jesus, like, don't call Jesus a baby, he's not a baby. Dear seven pound, five ounce baby Jesus, you know, that prayer, I love that, because he's fixated on this idea of Jesus, this, oh, sweet, cute, li-, and he's like, no, not, yes, but no, <laughs> Many of us might have the same view. I think I've shared with you before, but I recall that whenever I was being raised, my grandmother would always have a nativity under her Christmas tree. And at grandma's house, we didn't always have the best gifts, right? I mean, I shouldn't say that, right? But I had better gifts at other houses. But at grandma's house, we had weird things. Like we had these little um, paper chain things we made to decorate the tree. We did that, right? We kids made them. It was an activity on Christmas Eve. Probably to keep us out of everybody's way, but... You know, it it worked. And then there was a nativity. And there was actually no presents at first. And then we had presents later because there was this thing. And we would look at this manger and contemplate, contemplate what God is doing at Christmas. Now, I can't say that there was some profound theological exposition of what was. But it was a sense of wonder at this baby. What is going on? On. See, I actually think Christmas songs are worship songs, and one that was on my heart as I was getting ready was this song, um, O Come, Let Us Adore Him. O Come, Let Us Adore Him. O Come, Let Us Adore Him. Christ, yeah, the Lord. I mean, how amazing that we have this season of celebrating Jesus, and what are we celebrating in Jesus? When we sing these songs that quicken our soul, are we like, come let us adore him, this baby in a manger? Yes, but is that the totality of what we're worshiping? Today, I'm gonna take us forward in Isaiah's prophecies. We've been in seven, eight, and nine so far, the prophecies of Isaiah, but we're gonna jump all the way ahead, and you will know this passage, but I wanna talk about the weight The glory of Christmas. This is from Isaiah 53. So if you would turn to Isaiah 53 with me, it's going to be verses 1 through 6. And I want to read it together, and then um, we'll talk through it this morning. This is what the word says. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, 
like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. No one from whom men, or like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Five. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That doesn't sound very much like a Christmas uh, prophecy, but it is. In the manifestation of Jesus Christ, this prophecy is fulfilled a little bit of context here we're at in the book of Isaiah is Isaiah has been prophesying the truth of what's going to happen to the people of God. And, and just when you think in the book of Isaiah around chapters 40 to 50, you think, man, there's nothing good going to happen. Like, they're, they're done. He says, I will not forsake you forever. I am going to save my people Israel, and God promises to do so. And in the middle of this proclamation of God's work of salvation, let me say this, a total redemption, a full restoration of God's people, those who struggle, this passage is proclaimed by the prophet. Breaking it down, this is what the word says. Who has believed our message? That's how 53 starts. Who is believing what we're proclaiming? Who's believing our report about Messiah? Who's be believing our doctrine? These are other words that could mean the same as message. The, the teachings that we have. Oh, here's one. Who, who's believing the news of what's about to happen? Or who believes our tidings? You ever sang that Christmas uh, carol of tidings? Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Did we just sing that just now? Yeah. That's the message. That's the news. But here when the prophet begins, he doesn't say, oh, all believed it. He says, who believes it? I'll say this. And man, Christmas is a time of glorification, but it's also a time of separation. Because here's the reality, that the message implies that in many ways, the proclamation of Jesus Christ will fall on deaf ears. It will fall and be proclaimed over people who will not believe it. That's built in to the question, who will believe our message? Or who has believed it? That when Christ is preached, people will refuse, wait. That when Christ is sung about, people will withdraw. 
See, you can have a season of Christmas without Jesus, and everyone's happy about that. But when you start to actually lean into what Christmas is about, for those of us who believe in the Messiah, people begin to repel if they don't believe the message. Why am I saying that? Because I don't want you to think that's abnormal. It's not. Some of you have told me, I, I go to my family, and they don't want to hear anything about Jesus, and they don't believe about Jesus, and they don't think about it, and what am I to do? And we're going to talk about what we are called to do in those moments as believers amongst the non-believing people later on today. But isn't it interesting that that's the first response? I remember one time I was talking to another pastor, and they're like, I just don't know why people don't get it. And I'm like, you know, every time Jesus showed up, he was rejected. And you remember the disciples, right? But I mean, but when he would show up doing spiritual warfare, people weren't like, yeah, he's here. They're like, get away from me. Matter of fact, I remember even Peter fell on his face. Away from me, I'm a man of unclean lips from the people of unclean lips. That's like an Old Testament like proclamation, this Messiah. I would even argue that, now you can tell me this isn't true for you, but most of us are saved kicking and screaming. Not, not choosing and believing, but rejecting and walking away until God says, I've had enough of this, and he saves us. Too many times people think, well, I don't belong in church. I, I, don't be, I ought not be a Christian because it's hard for me. Listen, it's God saving us in spite of ourselves. Now maybe, and I'm not saying there's not testimonies that says that I chose Jesus, I leaned in us, I was raised in the faith, and for that, praise God. And yet, some part of us will be in this question of who has believed the message? Who has believed our good tidings? Then, going on, the prophet says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And arm of the Lord sounds strange, but it's not as strange as you think about muscles, right? So it's like the strength of the Lord, and the Lord here is Yahweh, the power of Yahweh, who to whom has, listen to the word, the power of Yahweh been revealed. Again, it means it's not obvious. It's not obvious. And yet, there will be those who will believe the message, and there will be those who see the power of God and praise God for that. Saved. So then we're going to get into some interesting descriptions of this fulfillment of a Messianic prophecy. And here it goes. Verse 2, he grew up before him, hmm, interesting, like a tender shoot. And I was like, well, what's a tender shoot? You know, what does that mean? And the biblical word is considered, it's a sapling, and it literally means a sucker, you know, like, not a sucker, but like a sucker, like a, I don't know, I think like a sucker fish or something, you know. Um, but it's like a, a, a plant. And now some of you know this already, so I'm going to say something that you already know, and that's fine. Because you're smarter than I am, I understand. But you take and you pop off a sapling or a sucker, and then you plant it in the ground, and then it grows, right? So like, and, and, but it's, it's dangerous, this world, for that little plant. It's, it's, it's risky. I remember that um, one of my, uh, Chris's uncles, planted a sampling and he was so annoyed because his kids kept mowing it off and he finally had to put a protection around it and put a sign and scream and say don't cut down the sapling it's going to be a tree if you'll stop mowing it down 
That's the idea here of a tender shoot, you know. Now, now I said that there's more going on in the birth of Christ than Jesus, the baby, but he is delicate. He is at risk. He is born into flesh like us. Someone has to care and provide for him. Someone has to protect him. And we mentioned that passively last week, how he fled into Egypt at the revelation to his dad, his stepdad, to, to, to take him away lest he be killed. He was, risky. he was at risk as a child. But he grew up before him, God, like a tender shoot, like the hope that God desires. The second thing, though, here, um, assembly, I think, is considered, it says, and like a root out of dry ground. Now, I love this because the word root here means someone who goes deep, deep in dry ground. Not, not in well-nurtured you know, land, not in moist soil, but in a hard place. And so you begin to get this image of the one who would be Savior being a sapling from the main tree planted into dry ground at risk and yet deep and powerful. Changing everything, in fact. Isn't Christmas amazing? Isn't Christmas glorious? That in that dry ground, he broke forth and brought life. I don't know if you feel that. I feel that. Now, See, and we're just going to walk through this because it just goes gooder and gooder as we go, right? A tender shoot, a root, a deep person from dry. Look at this. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Like, we have and that little the nativity scene my grandma had. You had everybody gathering around worshiping Jesus, you know, including us kids, by the way. We're all around right behind the shepherds and the kings, like, what's going on in this little thing? But we're all looking. But the prophecy says that there was nothing about him that was inherently beautiful. Now, this will sound counterintuitive to us, though, right? Or no majesty, the word means, uh, can mean glory or weight, that we would uh, be attracted to him. So he had no beauty or majesty, splendor, magnificence that would attract us to him. And that is counterintuitive. I don't know if you're like me, but whenever I read the Bible, I'm always like, these prophets, these Israelites, how do they not get this? These disciples, those sinners, how do they not get this? And then I realize, oh, this is me. This is me. We're going to talk about that in a minute. That, that, that there's nothing inherently that we're drawn to of our own observation or speculation about Jesus. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Now, see, that might seem incredible, but there is nothing inherently beautiful or comely about baby Jesus. And I think we've turned it into that. Well, isn't it obvious that the child should be worshipped? Isn't it obvious that the world ought to come? Isn't it obvious that he will change everything? And the prophecy says, not so much. As a matter of fact, the word says he could be ignored easily. Have you thought about um, why there's no room at the inn, why he's in a manger? How easy can you ignore a baby in a manger? This isn't some big proclamation of what God is doing. It's the work of 
of subtlety. It's the work of ordinariness. And this is consistent, by the way, unless you think, well, yes, Old Testament. No, no, no. New Testament, right before crucifixion, the same truths revealed. Nothing about him. And yet, we are drawn to him. Going on, what does it say? Three. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Like one whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. First of all, yes, that word despised, the same word used twice in the same passage. That's interesting to me. But secondly, he was despised and rejected by humankind, the word says, or mankind, your translation might say. But just a little tie back to the um, gender trap series. The word here is ish. Just means all men, all mankind. Remember ish and ish, ish, ah right, men, male and female, that, that, that he was despised and rejected by us. As a matter of fact, look at what the word says. It says, and we, you see the word, esteemed him not. It doesn't say, and they esteemed him not, but we all esteemed him not. Despised and rejected by Ish, a man of sorrows, a man who is acquainted with pain and grief and sickness. This isn't often how we think of Jesus at Christmas. As, as the baby who will grow into the man who will live a sorrowful and pain-filled life. And you might go, well, yeah, no, at the cross he was, but in his life he wasn't. But do you not sense from the scriptures how he was bearing the pain of the world? We're going to unpack that a little bit. He was walking amongst the sin and brokenness and absorbing it as he went. As a matter of fact, the reason he leans to the cross is because of the realization of the sin of the world. I don't mean like he didn't know. I mean like he experienced it firsthand. This brokenness must end. You see, for some of us, um, Christmas can be a lonely and difficult time, right? I mean, the whole world is singing, rejoicing, and the whole world is dressed to the nines, and the whole world is getting gifts and, you know, racking up credit card debt or whatever, I hope not, okay? But the whole world is just on overdrive, and yet it can be lonely. It can be painful. It can be a very difficult season. So some of us, Christmas is a lonely time or a hard time. And I want you to know today, I want to be all-encompassing here, and I'm not trying to steal joy because joy is like, you know, um, gladness in spite of circumstance, but I want you to know that Jesus was a man of sorrows, sickness, grief, and suffering. He would not be offended <laughs> that, that Christmas doesn't feel great to you. He knows and maybe if that's you in your life, you can lean into that with him and say, this is a hard season, Jesus. He's, he, he's, he knows it firsthand. The word goes on to say then that we hid our faces from him. There it is. We, we turned away. There was nothing in him that was beautiful. 
Man of sorrows, yeah. Like one whom amid men hid their faces. The word actually says, we hid our faces from him. He was despised, there it is again, and we esteemed him not. It, the word esteem there means to uh, consider or, or weigh, which I can't help but tie into glorify him. That there was a calculus being done and it wasn't very good on our side for whom Jesus is, was, or will be. So we hid our faces from him and he was despised. We did not esteem him or honor him or glorify him. And again, we, I want to say it one more time, Verse 3, esteemed him not. Why is that a big deal? Because Isaiah is speaking it. <laughs> like, Isaiah is the prophet of God, and he includes himself in the proclamation that we esteemed him not. That's interesting to me, that the prophet himself doesn't recognize the fullness of Jesus. So then we have this uh, season of joy and hope and excitement and yet um, often difficulty and pain and longing and waiting, and that is by design. Now look at this, verse 4. Because you stop there, you're like, oh boy, verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. And then we're going to go right back to it. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. A few things here. The first is that, um, that um, he took up our infirmities, right? So uh, he has borne, past tense here, our grief, our sickness, and our, our anxieties. And I want to say that r- real quickly, in fact, I say in fact because we will still experience these things in real time, our, our affirmities, our sickness, our, our struggles, but, and our anxieties, but the fact is that he has borne them, and again, this is the time jump thing that the prophet's doing, he has done it in the past, even though the prophecy is in the future. Let's just recognize what's being said, he has borne it for us already. We're going to talk about why that is true in a moment. But he has borne our grief, our sickness, and our anxieties. And then he has, kevi- he has carried our sorrows and our pains. And, and one of the things that's interesting to me is that um, the, uh, the word carried there doesn't mean just to carry something. It means to bear a heavy weight. And so the way I would say that is he has carried our heavy sorrows and he has carried our heavy pains. This is part of his work as Messiah. This is part of what he has done for us. Surely, the prophet says, he has done these things. And then, yet, we considered him three things, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Whatever's going on in Jesus' life, we're like, what must he have done to deserve that, Right? And again, if you're like me and you're reading the New Testament, you're like, how do these people not see it? And as the crowd screaming, crucify, crucify, you'd be going, I'd say, let him go, let him go. No, we wouldn't because we're sin-filled creatures. And we would look with pity on him on the stage and think, how did he end up there? He must deserve it. We considered him stricken. That means beat, touched, or thrown down by God. Smitten, that means to be attacked or to be killed. Struck, 
by God, and then lastly, to be afflicted, right? They've done something to deserve it. That's our assessment of what's going on. But then verse 5, and we know this verse, church, but, see there it is, surely he took him up, yet we considered him, but he was, again, a prophecy in the past of the future of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Look, but he was pierced for our transgressions. The word pierced there means to be born, bored, bored. You know, we talked about that a bit in that same series, to be run through, that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded. He was profaned for our rebellion. Wait, plural, rebellions. He was wounded for our sins. These are all the same word. He was profaned for our trespasses. That's one of those prayers we say, and you go, do you say um, trespasses, or uh, what's the other one we say? Hmm? Debts. Sin. The Gospel of Luke, it says sin. Yeah. Debts. Trespasses. Nice language for a sin-filled brokenness. The word says, but he was no matter what we thought of him, no matter what our interpretation of his life was, Christ's actual purpose were these things. He's wounded for our sins, run through. The word says what? He's crushed for our iniquities. Crushed for our iniquities. It means to be bruised or humiliated for our guilt or our fault, the evil in the world. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. What does that mean? The discipline for the things that would bring us peace, right? The um, correction that would be laid upon us was laid upon him that we might have peace for our peace, for our welfare, for our wholeness. In the Hebrew, this is the shalom. That, the, that what was laid upon this man of sorrows was so that we might have peace. And we talked about that. And then lastly, fourth, and by his wounds, now this is wild, by his wounds we are healed. You see, that's one of those things that we don't think about a lot with our lives because a bunch of us have scar tissue. We've been through some things. It's been hard. And you wonder, maybe you don't, I do, who can make this right? Who can heal these wounds? Who can put a salve on it, you know, a restoration of our hurts and our pains? The word here says counterintuitively that by his stripes we are healed. That when we look upon him, afflicted by God and smitten and struck down, that it's really his salvation for us. That in this great exchange, this great exchange, we are given life and he is given death. By his wounds, by his stripes, the word says, by the welts on his body, we ourselves are healed. The word says this, are cured, 
are we are restored, made whole. This is the great and enduring promise that is um, proclaimed by Isaiah for the future state of Israel, the people of God. That would be all who believe in the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? So we go from wondering what has he done to look at what he has done. And I believe with all my heart we have to live in that space to recognize that his stripes heal us. That we get what we don't deserve because he got what he didn't deserve. As a matter of fact, he took what he didn't deserve so that we don't have to. And in spite of this, look at the last sentence here. We, we read it a moment ago. In spite of those four profound truths, the word says, we all, there's the inclusive language again, Isaiah, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've wandered off. Each one has turned to his own way. Here's the second part. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That means that even in the middle of our wandering, that's why I said to you earlier today that God is saving us. Even in the middle of our kicking and screaming, God is saving us. And that this great Christmas story that starts at the beginning of creation, and we're going to talk about that briefly, but then comes into focus here at the nativity with Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the wise men and the shepherds is manifests fully in the salvation of God's people as we all wander away and miss the point. He's saving us. And Yahweh has laid on him our guilt, our punishment, our sins. And I want you to see this, not the sins of some of us, but the sins of all of us. The sins of all of us are included. Not some iniquity, iniquity, but all iniquity is laid upon Christ. That's powerful. So then we have this idea that the promise the full salvation and restoration for the people of God is this great exchange, the gift of Christ, and indeed is the power of Christmas. Jesus in the manger, sure. Jesus among us, of course. Jesus destined for the cross to change everything for eternity. That's Christmas. That's the Christ. The one who came. And we ought to see then, as we think about the baby in the manger, the shadow of the cross and the eternity of the throne, all encapsulated in this moment. Not the first one to think this up. John, you don't have to turn there, just you can hear it with me. This is John 1 6. This is what the word says. I'm at John 1 9, I'm sorry. The true light that gives light to every person was coming into the world. The light was coming. He was in the world, and although the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but people born of God. 
That's the Christmas story. Here it is, 14. The word became flesh and made his house among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. That's the Christmas story. The manifestation of God's promise for all people for all time. The blessing of Christ. The presence of the Messiah. I want to read to you another passage. This is a short one. Don't turn there again. We're going to do one final passage. You can turn if you want, but you don't have to. Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. This is just a brief little synopsis, because last week I said that at the beginning of John's imprisonment, his earthly ministry began. He said, the kingdom of God is near. Now, this is going to be in the middle of his earthly ministry in John 8, and, and he's been doing work. And this is what the word says. When Jesus came to Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever, he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and she began to serve him. When evening came, men who were demon-possessed were brought to Jesus, and he would drive out the spirits with a word, and he would heal all the sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and he carried our diseases. I told you that he walked amongst a sin-filled people, but his desire was that we would not stay there, and he would heal people. These were physical manifestations of the reality of whom Jesus is, of who Jesus is, the Christ. He did it to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet. One more stop in the Gospels, and then we're going to get to our final passage. This is John chapter 12. So we have now this manifestation of the uh, prophecy of Isaiah in Jesus' healing earthly ministry. This is going to be now John 12, 37 through 41. Even after John had done, I'm sorry, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the power of the Lord been revealed? See, this is John's testimony at the end of the healing ministry. In spite of all the healing ministry Jesus does, they still don't believe it. And he says, this is to fulfill what the prophet said. Who will believe it? And in 39, for this reason, they, would, they could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, and it's earlier in his prophecies, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke about Jesus. So Isaiah the prophet saw what was coming and prophesied that in spite of all that, they would reject him. So we see this now. Isaiah, Matthew, and John all saw the glory, the weight, the value of Jesus. And I wonder, in Christmas, what do we see? What do we see? 
Do we see this fulfillment? Do we see this prophecy? Do we see this man of sorrows? Do we see this eternal salvation? And lastly, do we see a sacrifice for sin for all time for all people? Because that ought to drive us to hope. That ought to change our view of the world. When we said, don't call conspiracy what the world calls conspiracy, why? Because we ought to be driven to hope by the truth that Jesus bore the sins of the whole world on the cross. That's wild. Now wait, you're like, but that everybody's going to be saved? It's not what the word says. People will still reject him, even though their sin is paid for, and even though by his stripes they would be healed. One final stop. This is in 2 Corinthians 5. You can turn there if you would like. This is then our Christmas message. So what should we do? How ought we to live in the light of the word made flesh in the weight of the glory of Christmas? This is what Paul writes to the church So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though he once regarded Christ himself in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone, anyone is in Christ, that one is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That means we ought to treat people like that. They're savable. Christ died to save them. And when they recognize it, they're new people. And I know we've walked the road in our own lives and others of disappointment after, and yet, if he's saving us, he will save us. And we ought to walk in that newness of Christ, and we ought to allow others to walk. Look, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, now here it is, and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. What's the ministry of reconciliation? That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's ish sins against them. It's not ish here because it's not Hebrew, but it's the same idea, all mankind's sins. That in Christ, he's no longer counting sin against them, but he's reconciling the world to himself, and that is our work. The ministry of reconciliation And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So the mission and the message of reconciliation. And by the way, praise God for missionaries and praise God for pastors and praise God for church leaders. But this doesn't say he's given that mission and that message to missionaries and preachers only, but to all his people. So going back to my question earlier, you show up at a gathering and they're not believing Christ. What do you do? You bring the mission, the ministry, and the message of reconciliation. I'm not, okay, you're like, what? So I'm gonna preach presence by our presence. Have faith. Be a witness. Be a testimony. Stand among a sinful world with a hope that all things can be made new in Christ. Listen, there is none that are hopeless. It's Christmas. So stand in that message and in that mission. It's for all God's people. 
We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God himself were making his appeal through us. Listen to Paul does here. I love it. We implore you then on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Can I just pause for a minute here and say that to you? If you're in the room this morning and there's healing that you need, there's wounds that you've not you know, surrendered to Christ, there's things that you're experiencing and you're like, he doesn't know what it means, that if you're hearing the message and if you're watching the live stream or you're listening later, that you would say, yes, even that thing, that he died for all the sins and by his wounds we are healed. Be reconciled to God. This is the work of Christ. This is the work of baby Jesus in the manger to bring the whole world to his father. Opportunity, a season of joy and hope. Be reconciled to God. And then 21, and we could have started here, we read this. God made him, Christ, who had no sin, Christ, to be sin, become sin for us, so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. And this is that life in Christ that we begin to experience. That he hasn't left us on our own, but he's saving us in righteousness. Not ours by works, but Christ's by the cross and the resurrection. The righteousness of God. So that's what we have this Christmas. I have a question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God desires to use you to bring the message of hope and reconciliation to those that you might feel are far off? Or let me ask it like this. Do you believe that um, for yourself? Do you believe that it's for you, the message of reconciliation, that God has drawn you to himself in Jesus Christ? 1 Timothy 3, he appeared in a body. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by the angels. He was preached among the nations. He was believed on in this world, and he was taken up to glory. That is our testimony. Do you believe it? How do you view Christmas this year? How do you view Christmas for others this year? Are you ready for Christmas? Heard someone this morning say, no. And I thought, that's okay, because Jesus is coming. <laughs> Get ready, but you don't gotta be ready. Pray with me if you would. Father God, for this glorious message of your hope for all people, tied into the prophets of the Old Testament, brought into the new covenant of your people, where your son died that we might be free of our sin. And Father, the simplest idea that we're called to repent of our sin and turn towards you is the beginning of our salvation in Christ, that in that saving moment, you're manifesting your good plan for us in our lives. I pray, Father, this morning for um, those who maybe are standing at that point and they're like, 
I just don't know that you would draw them to yourself, that this gospel message would break through in their hearts and lives, that they might receive you fully, they might trust you fully. And Father, as we continue to walk this life out together, I pray that you would continue to reconcile yourself to us, that this journey that began so simply with a response to your gospel has opened up into a world of glory and a world of of possibilities and mysteries that we have to live with you in every day. And then, Father, I ask that as your ambassadors, that you would give us your Holy Spirit's presence, that we might see and know the things around us and be faithful witnesses to the gospel. I'm not, Father, asking you to have us have awkward conversations that you don't want us to have, but if you do, that we would obey and have them. If, 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 if there's places that we'd rather not go and stand, that you would give us the strength to go and stand, and that we would be able to um, glorify you in our obedience, Father, as you shape us to be more like your children. Father, for the the truth of the gospel today, I give you thanks and praise, and I pray that as we look toward the coming Christ, the Christmas day, that we would see anew, afresh, the, the profound nature of the work that you have done, are doing, and will do in Jesus that we would be his people in faith. Help us to do that work, Father, as only you can. Glorify yourself among the nations as we join in singing all these things this season. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.